Welcome to the Human Insight Podcast, where we help you bridge the empathy gap to bring you a valuable new understanding of some of the most innovative ideas and trends shaping the future of business and customer experience. I'm Janelle Estes, Chief Insights Officer at User Testing. I'm Andy McMillan, CEO of User Testing. And today we've invited Kate Lawrence, Head of UX at Akamai. Thanks so much for joining us today, Kate, and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So uh, you're currently the head of UX at Akamai, which is a global content delivery network focused on B2B. So can you tell us a little bit about your role today, uh, what you're focused on, and maybe even what keeps you up at night? I'd love to. So thank you for having me. I say yes to anything Janelis has asked me. So when she said, would you like to come on the podcast? The answer, of course, is yes. And so I'm really proud to be able to represent Akamai. Akamai makes the internet fast, reliable, and secure. So when you talk about B2B, the work of UX is very different at Akamai for me than it has been at previous companies. And I actually started at Akamai heading up user research. And user experience at Akamai is three pillars. It's user research, it's user experience design, and it's also technical writing. And so now I have the opportunity to lead the entire function. It's a group of 55 people and mostly based here in the Cambridge, Boston area. We also have a team in Krakow and Poland. And so it's been a thrill and an honor to step up into this role because the team has been amazing. Making the internet fast and secure and scalable seems like a really important thing at the moment since it's the feels like the one thing holding us all together and how our kids are going right. to school and everything else. So uh, thank you for the work you all do for that. And it's been it's been quite it's been quite an interesting time at Akamai with traffic surging. You know, on any given day, Akamai is handling anywhere between fifty and thirty percent of all the internet traffic. So, as you can imagine, with all the Zoom meetings that all of our kids are attending as part of remote schooling and more, and all of us working from home, it's a very busy time out there on the internet. Yeah, I know. I get a notification from my internet service provider about the 10th or 11th day of every month saying I'm running up on my monthly internet allowance of usage. So I I think we're all putting this to the test right now. I think that sounds just about right. So the team of about 55 people focused on the three different pillars that you just mentioned. What, you know, what are some of the, the metrics or KPIs or things that your team directly or indirectly influences? And maybe how does that map to your team strategy and purpose? When I think about measuring the user experience, I will never forget reading reading an article about, it must have been five years ago at this point, on measuring you. I love Jeff Soro and the work that they do out of his Colorado office around the measurement of user and customer experience. But I will never forget reading something years ago that you don't start with measurement, you start with your users. You must start there and understand when you're measuring who are you measuring and why? And so start with your users and think about B2B. Think about the space that Akamai is in. It is not like a company like TripAdvisor where I used to work, where you're thinking about, okay, our user is the traveler and the person doing research or booking travel and thinking about travel. No, at a company like Akamai, your user is both a user and a customer. And sometimes those are the same person and sometimes they are not. So our end user may be a security architect, our end user may be a systems administrator, and our buyer or customer could be the CISO or the chief information officer and chief technology officer. So we, we have to understand who we're measuring and why. And so then we have to look at across Akamai, 
how are we measuring success? Or what are we using to determine what is success? Is that a KPI? Are we looking at mission critical goals? What are we looking at and why? And of course, I always like to look at satisfaction in that user experience. I think within Akamai, within the user experience team, we've recently started to put precision and rigor around measurement. And we talk a lot about the UMUX scale. We talk a lot about SUS. And those of us in UX understand those as, as tools of this industry. It's combinations of all of those. But we certainly, both in a design perspective and a measurement perspective, we start with the understanding of who is the user. And that, that person, that humanity that we're designing for humans, we're creating products for humans to use we never lose sight of that. That user, whether we're talking about measurement or the experience, always stays at the center of everything we do. So you mentioned uh, TripAdvisor, and it's interesting you've done kind of both B2C and, and B2B. You know, what's in your opinion, what's the difference between UX in those two spaces? Or is there a difference? Like, how would you describe in your career going from working on what is a you know, very consumer-centric experience to something that's more B2B? I'm really glad you asked that because... At different points in my career, particularly before Akamai, in the last, I would say, 10 to 15 years, that gap was much more significant. And there were different, I think, different measures of success and different expectations for B2B and B2C. But now, while they are different, that gap has closed or is has made significant traction towards closing because enterprise users, they don't just want, they demand the simplicity of consumer apps. So we, we, when we're designing for enterprise, we are dealing with the expectation and the demand that the simplicity and the elegance of consumer apps is represented in enterprise design as well. Yeah, I've certainly experienced that in my career. I mean, obviously, we spend a ton of time at user testing focused on our on our UX because it's it's part of what we do. Um, but even in, in you know, Acton Software, where I was at in marketing automation, we did that. But if I go back further, when I was a product manager, you know, 10, 15 years ago at Oracle, I wouldn't exactly say at Oracle we were spending uh, the right amount of time on the user experience as maybe evidenced by the late 90s, early 2000 Oracle software suite was not exactly a UX panacea. But I think we're starting to learn our lessons here that it, it matters. Everybody wants to have a good experience in the products they use. It is interesting to me when you step into the enterprise space, as I did, not having come from that background, it is interesting how enlightening and eye-opening it can be for developers, for product teams to have to, to dial up their exposure to the end user. And that's the moment I, I have always loved as a research leader is that moment. It's like, if you've ever, have you ever seen, have you ever seen on YouTube or clips on the news when a child who's never had hearing, who's never been able to hear is fitted with new hearing aids and hears his or her mother's voice for the first time. And they are screaming with joy. And it is emotional because you realize for those of us who work at that intersection, right, of humanity and technology, it's that moment as a researcher and a research leader, you never tire of seeing an engineer who's been developing these products for a number of years really tune into the user's voice in a meaningful way for the first time. That is the reason I get out of bed in the morning. Like Janelle talks about what keeps you up at night. Well, that's what gets me out of bed is to have that moment with teens 
and understanding we can move the needle for these users and hearing their voice and hearing them say, I get it. And I, I want more of this and let's hear more of the user's voice. I never tire of that moment. In fact, it's like I said, it's what gets me out of bed in the morning. That's awesome. And I think there's probably more opportunity for that kind of enlightening in yes. B2B, as you're saying, because you know, yeah. if you're a software developer working on know, accounts payable software, like yeah. you don't go home all day and use accounts payable software. But if you're an engineer and you work on Twitter, like you might go home and use Twitter all day. Like you, you are your user, yeah. perhaps more often in consumer. We were just talking about this and I told a story that I'll tell here. And if it's not interesting, you can cut it out later. But <laughs> we were talking about why people come to user experience through different channels. And someone said to me, like, well, your channel, you came to it through user research. And I said, well, I really... I've really always loved, I do, I love the human aspect of it and opening people's eyes to it. And for years and years when I lived in Cambridge, before I had a family moved into the suburbs, I lived in Cambridge and I, I always grew up musical and I sang in a choir. And right before the choir was the soprano, alto, tenor bass, there were about 60 of us called Spectrum Singers in Cambridge. And we would sing these classical music in this beautiful church and we'd have like three or four performances a year. And every time before a concert, the director, John Ehrlich, would give us the equivalent of like, I guess, the Bill Belichick pregame chat. And he would say, in these moments, in this performance, you have an opportunity to speak to each member of this audience and move them just a little bit to a better place. We don't know what they're contemplating. Is someone thinking about getting married? Did someone just find out they're you know, facing a disease challenge? Like what's, what's happening with these people in this audience? In those moments, when you deliver something beautiful and seamless and with energy, you can move people to a better place. That gave me goosebumps then and it gives me goosebumps now because all of our work in enterprise, let's make these tasks, let's make this securing of your website and delivering a seamless flow of your internet traffic. Let's make that seamless for people so they can go on and live their lives and, and do those things and coach that softball game and, and go to that scouts meeting and, and go sing in a choir and go train for a marathon. Let's make these processes easy, make them seamless so people can live their lives and that whole ecosystem can come together. So I, I love that opportunity and that's you know getting really lofty and preaching about it, but it's the reason that I do this work. It's why I love what I do. I think that's awesome. And I think we hear from users right now that they crave that because we all have this stress level right now of like what's yeah. going on in the world and what we're dealing with. And so when, you know, even in the smallest of things, when you, you know, go to that outdoor restaurant and they've got the QR code for you to scan and it just doesn't work. It's like, I'm already at stress level nine. Like I just need the little things to work. And so, you know, you're right. Like it may not be that we're the ones coming up with the medical breakthrough that solves the larger problem, but like all these little things add up. And so, you know, we are hearing from a lot of customers right now. They're just trying to make it so people can get from, from point A to point B on the thing they're trying to do a little bit easier right now goes a long way. I remember when I worked at my previous company, I worked with Deirdre Costello. She's actually running research at Toast now. She used to have the greatest expression. She'd say, look, if this is eating your vegetables, why not make it taste amazing? Like people have to eat a salad. They need to eat vegetables to live. Why can't they taste great too? Why can't people be excited about these Brussels sprouts that they have to eat? So sometimes it is that. It's this, let's make this, let's make this task that has to happen to deliver a great experience for these end users, a, a delicious one, a joyful one. 
I love all the examples that you've used, Kate, and um, shows the power of you know listening to, to customers and understanding the human experience. So you talked about the importance of the human perspective and sharing that with people who might not have regular access to users or customers. And you've got a big team at Akamai that is needs to be sort of influenced and, and shown the human perspective. So how, how do you do that? How do you deliver on that as a team? That is where mixed methods research and also working in a smart way with the resources that we have comes into play. So I'm going to, I'm going to start with answering that through a research resource lens. Everyone thinks the way to grow and scale research is hire more researchers. That is not how it's done. In my experience, you can add researchers, but what you need is the right, you need the right tools and you need the right methods because just adding researchers is not the solution. If, if you're not adding and scaling through the right tools and platforms, you don't have the help that you need and the support. It's You just can't keep adding bodies. And so this is where we've gotten smart about the tools that we use. And everybody knows, everyone knows that I like user testing, but it's beyond that. Because what user testing has given us is the ability to open up the room so that more people can come in and have exposure to customers and users. And Janelle, you know this because I reached out to you and I said, I don't know. I don't know how to best use this platform in, B, in B2B. And I, it's B2B, you can have a challenge in, in doing, you can have a challenge in doing un, unmoderated remote user testing because sometimes those situations are highly technical and complex. When I started to understand the value of the live conversation platform, I felt like someone handed me a megaphone. I was able to say across the organization, now we have this tool that lets all of you listen in on these user conversations that all of you can then learn from and design better products and services. So that's the first part of the question. The second part is recruiting is the biggest challenge for UX and user research in enterprise. Finding the right people to ask the right questions of is a huge challenge. How we address that is we had to we had to think about how are we going to get in product. And so we got solutions and platforms to get us there. We need to be doing recruiting in product because this notion of who do we know who might fit this profile or that profile, it's the game of telephone and it goes on too far and sales has other priorities they're trying to chase down. So do customer experience managers and customer relation managers. So we had to get really precise about going to the users, going to the customers and getting technology that helped us get there. Once we open that door through user testing, we have the right tools to then have the conversation and surface the issues. Yeah, super helpful. Speaking of the game of telephone, I, I always think of that as when teams are adding more researchers mm-hmm. versus empowering others, you're just sort of like creating this big game of telephone where it's like, you know, only that research team really has the knowledge and understanding of the end user. So like, how do you, how do you break that down? And so people can actually connect one-to-one with who they're designing and creating for. So I want to go a little deeper on this because I, democratization, you just tapped into democratization of user research. And I believe that on paper, I'm in full support of it. It's hard though. It's really tough and it's challenging. And I do like to have a researcher involved and maybe the researcher is just curating the sessions, you know, writing the script. I 
think there needs to be a level of research involvement, a full democratization. I encourage everyone to be talking to users and customers. Full democratization is tough. I think it's challenging. And I think, you know, on paper, it looks more straightforward than it actually is in real life. But I think there's a level of curation and stewardship that that research can play that role and help the democratization process as opposed to just kind of fully fully like unrolling unfurling this democratization process throughout the organization. Yeah, I think one of the trends we've seen that we seem to broadly agree with is this idea that you can scale feedback and you yeah. can help people get quality feedback, like help them get feedback in better ways and more structured ways. Yeah. But it's not like we're going to take, you know, the equivalent of getting a PhD in anthropology and being a professional researcher and just kind of go around sprinkling that on people and expecting that they're going to somehow be able to produce the kind of results that a professional researcher can. We've almost started to think of it as it's an exercise that might lead to research. So if I'm a product manager and I'm getting lots of feedback, feedback is good. And there's some subset of feedback I need to kind of be trained to go, hey, like that's an interesting nugget. Like, let me pull my research team in and really dive into that. And so I think the whole democratizing research trend, we're starting to see it shift more to empowering people to get quality feedback, knowing when to go get research and kind of thinking about how these things live side by side, rather than really thinking we can just you know, take what researchers do professionally and expect people that have entirely different skill sets to just become part-time researchers. I'm really glad you brought that up because one thing I learned in my career as a research leader is when people ask for research, what they actually need is a discussion of what research is and what, what it's not. Like research is more than having conversations with customers. Research is more science than art. Research is, <laughs> Janelle, if you knew how many times I pulled the Nielsen Norman group, that uh, the, the different methods, that one image all the time. The quadrant. Uh, yes, the quadrant all the time. And so we do education and then we do engagement. You know, then we scope the effort. But we're talking about what research is, where it can add value. I show a version of the rainbow spreadsheet to talk about how we synthesize findings because getting the information and making it actionable, that distillation and synthesis, that's how a bill becomes a law. That process, walking people through that, all of a sudden they feel better and they're ready to have the let's talk about research discussion. But I learned the hard way that you can't go in and, and just address and start scoping the research need without having that foundational discussion. Do you think, I like that a lot, if you flip that around the opposite direction, do you think there's a role that researchers can play in helping people get better feedback without trying to qualify it as research. And without trying to democratize the program, yes, I think there is absolutely a role in that. Yes, research as a bridge, research as a facilitator, research as a, like we have an interesting story, research as a guide. We, We have an interesting story. One of our lead, our head, she now heads research, she was conducting a research session and she had probably anywhere between four and six people on the call with her texting her saying, ask the person this, ask the person this. And she said, you don't, you don't ask it in that way, trying to move them from question answer to what Steve Portable calls question story. You have to kind of back into it. You have to like understand the landscape and it's not, oh, well, would you call it this? It's, we have to get the user to talk about what that experience looks like, feels like, what is the mental model so that we can understand it as opposed to asking them, does what you see on the screen seem to make sense? Of course. So, so she's not only conducting the research, 
she's educating the team in the process. And then after it came out, after the answer, after the person started to tell the story and the user was really illustrated in the context of his work, the team was saying to her, Oh, okay. I get it. I see it. Okay. Keep doing that. Keep doing that thing you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. That's the kind of education I think, you know, I'm, as I said, I'm a product manager by background. And so now in user testing, I spend a whole bunch of time with, with all these researchers. And what I've realized is I, I was remarkably bad at getting feedback. I mean, not even thinking about conducting research. I was just bad at getting feedback as a product manager. I think it would have been very valuable for me to just have a little bit of perspective and how to ask questions. And so uh, I think that's really, really interesting. And you know, Akamai is filled with incredibly smart, intellectual, very academic folks, highly technical folks. And so it is a joy. Like I said, you don't get to walk into just kind of any company today and and find people who want to learn those things and want to understand more what user experience is and how it can help. A lot of companies have that more that's been baking a little longer. So one of the reasons I remember when I was interviewing for jobs I went into my husband's office and I said, I think I'm going to go to Akamai. And he said, really? You know, he expected me, I don't know, I like to go to Sephora or Nordstrom.com or something. And I said, no, I really, like, here's why. The opportunity, this is right up my alley. And so we talked about it. And he said, oh, now I get it. But I mean, he was like, what are you talking about? You're going to Akamai. I never saw that coming. But I loved the opportunity because there's so many of those moments yet to come where the eyes open and they say, wow, okay, I get this. I want this. Keep going. Yeah, that's great. And it sounds like you've made a lot of progress just in a couple couple short years. What are you excited about for the future there at Akamai? Like what are your what are your what are your grand plans? <laughs> we have such big plans. We have such big plans. I'm really excited because there is a whole shift happening in the market around product-led growth. So when I hear product-led growth, that to me is users. You know, we're talking about a product selling itself through its usefulness and its awesome experience. And so we're right there. As user experience practitioners, we are in the product with the users. We are designing with the users in mind, and we are all about creating that great, granular, wonderful user experience. And all of the gestures and the motions and the nuances of that, like we are plugged right into that. And so this notion of what matters starts with the experience in the product. This is the best day of our lives. We get to, do, you know, this is where we get to run fast and show exactly what we can do. And so the opportunity for Akamai is tremendous in, in that as we've, the landscape is shifting. Yeah, I love that. You know what's interesting? I was talking with somebody from Tide yesterday, not the not the laundry detergent, but it's it's a fintech company for SMBs based in the in the UK. And the design leader over there was talking to me about how he's made a concerted effort to essentially like bridge this gap between the language that designers speak and mm-hmm. the language that like business and executives speak. And so I thought it was really compelling that there was like a concerted, he had an effort around that. So can you tell me what are your, what are your thoughts on that? Like, have you noticed that in your career, like maybe the world of research and UX having a language that maybe doesn't translate to exact speak and like, how do you bridge that gap? Yes, you have tapped into, and he has tapped into an absolute, there's a cultural divide between practitioners of the experience and typically the the C-suite is they are often not speaking incompatible languages, but just there's, it's just at a different altitude, right? The language is just at a different altitude. And so 
I have seen UX practitioners really struggle when they try to put their framework, when they try to lead with their framework and their nomenclature and their currency in terms of language. I am always an advocate of meeting people where they are. And when we're talking with C-suite, when we're talking with executives, we are aligning to what is important to them because the only way, I mean, that's really about accessibility. It's really about understanding your user. And in those moments when you're speaking to someone who doesn't come from a user experience background, it is really about rising to that altitude and the currency use of that altitude to understand you're talking about KPIs and you know how do they define success and mapping it to what's important to them. And so I'm more of a bridger and a connector in that way. I know there's different schools of thought about this in UX and people say, well, we just need to convince people. We just need to make them see the importance of, and when sentences start with that as a UX leader, I don't go that route. I go a different route, which is what is the language you speak? I'm going to map to that. I'm going to adapt to that. And then I'm going to help. I'm going to help show you some other things one at a time to get us on the same page. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Kind of show up where they are versus trying to teach them a whole new world. Yeah, I Um, need to show up in their country, respect their traditions, and then bridge the gap to bridge the gap to mine and try to release those borders. Yeah. If we go back to a couple years ago when you joined ACMI, how big was your team and how have you grown it? And I guess alongside that, how have you built the case for your team and the, the value you deliver? Growing and scaling research, and now I'm in the user experience role, so all of it is of concern to me, but growing and scaling research when I got to Akamai, this is where I needed to become an essentialist. And I told you when we were emailing about this session, I just read this book that has really helped me tremendously as we kind of chart the work in front of us. But when I arrived at Akamai, it was very clear that we had to strengthen our quantitative research offering. And I was able to adjust roles to make that happen. And we have a terrific quant lead right now. I'm so excited that he's on the team and he's made amazing progress. We talk about running fast. He's running at about 250 miles an hour. He's doing an awesome job. His name is Mitch Collum. And what we've been able to do is apply the rigor of having strong quant and strong qual. So we were able to form research. I had a small team. Research has always at Akamai, it's been small but mighty. So that's what I would say. And the majority of our UX team is actually technical writing because of all the products and services we support across the company. We have a really strong leader in our tech lead, our tech director, tech writing director, Beth Favini. And then we have design as well under my colleague, Joe Penny, who's extraordinary. I will say this, the way to grow and scale if we're talking about research is you have to, I've said this before, and it's it's the only way I know to do it. You have to engage with people across the the company and you have to say yes to every single request that you get on some size or scale. You have to say yes. And you have to feel the pain of like almost ripping your hair out because you're so busy. That is the way research grows is by creating demand. You have to say yes. And when people come and say, I need a card sort, I need this specialized conjoint analysis, whatever request they bring to your door, you say yes. And then you shape them into what you think is the best method. Instead of saying, no, you don't want that. You want to do this. No, you say, yes, you shape them. You shape their requests into what is possible for you to do. You add enthusiasm and energy to the, to the request. You bring the team along. You partner with them. You hit it out of the park. And then you will have 10 more people at your door. And then when the business sees the value spoken of in 
you know, in previews before releases that we changed this because of research and the business sees the engagement and the excitement of the teams. Like that's how you get resources added. And I've seen researchers and research leaders do a lot of the negotiating at the door. You know, when you're in pre-COVID, somebody would knock at your door and say, oh, here's a package. Will you sign for it, et cetera. So you're having that conversation in that two inches that's open in the doorway between you and the person standing on the front porch. That is not the place for negotiation. Like there's so much research negotiation that people want to do to say, well, you don't really want a card sort. Well, I don't think you want a usability test. You probably want to do this evaluative research. No, you have to agree. You know what? This is worth partnering on. Let's explore it. So you have to say yes, and you have to take them down that path. It's the it's the too much negotiating up front. People see you as a blocker. Oh, yeah, I heard UX could be a pain. I'm not going to use that. In other companies, this happened. Got to say yes. You got to get that partnership, the evangelism up front, and then you take them down the path with you. I think that's spot on. That's great. Negotiate later. And then you get all these evangelists. And we were just talking about this at work the other day. Then you have people who are talking about your services. You don't have to like you're then you're able to keep your head down and do the work. And then you've then you have people allies throughout the organization who are saying, oh, you guys have to reach out to the research team or talk to the UX team. We had this great experience. So then it sells itself. That's product led growth at that point. I'm hoping. I wanted to chat, Kate, a little bit about sort of the shift. You just mentioned COVID, so it uh, reminded me of, you know, the last six or six to nine months or so, the world has changed. So we talk a lot and you see a lot of data around consumer spending and consumer shifts in behavior. As you serve a more of a B2B audience, have you noticed shifts in your customer base and how have you calibrated against those shifts? Yes, and yes, and yes. And so Akamai, it's, we are seeing surging traffic on the internet, and Akamai is certainly experiencing that as a B2B provider. And what, what I've noticed most significantly in user experience is the willingness of customers and users to participate in research. We are seeing double and triple and quadruple the response rates when we've asked for participation in research. And people are so willing to give us their time. And they even, this this I haven't seen before very often in my career, people are thanking us for doing research and saying, thank you so much. This is a cool study. Can we do another one? Can I participate again? Call me again. And so the double, the triple, the quadruple rates you can say, well, are people seeking connection? Do they just have a different relationship with time now that we're all working from home? There can be any number of reasons for it. It's been a beautiful thing for us to see. So certainly at Akamai with traffic surging and our services more in demand than ever, it's been nice to see customers and users really respond so positively. And then we get these larger sample sizes for research. And it's been a really wonderful thing to see during such a challenging time. We're so grateful for that. That's really nice. We, uh, we've heard from some of our panel that they just appreciate being heard right now. Like a lot of us feel yeah. like the world is kind of happening to us. And so yeah. the idea that their voice can be heard and something can happen because of their feedback, people really appreciate right now, which is great. It's great for research. Right. And I think, you know, I spoke about the book. I loved essentialism. I think as we all, we're all really doing essential things right now, right? There's been so much cut out for us that, that in terms of distraction that 
maybe we're able to put more thought and more meaning into those core aspects, those essential aspects of our lives and our jobs. And we're saying, wait a minute, we want this to be better. I mean, I know we were laughing about this at dinner the other night, my family and I were laughing about, we've really gotten good at cooking dinner. And I know that sounds like a, mi- a minor thing, but actually it's not. It's We've gotten much more efficient and caring about what we're eating, how we're preparing it. And that one task of our daily lives, we've all contributed to make better. And so when the world opens back up, we are eating healthier, eating better, choosing better ingredients, more conscious about what we're cooking, how we're cooking it. That whole experience has improved because we've eliminated the 20 other things we were trying to do at the same time. Yeah, we felt like that about our kids scheduling in their childhood. I mean, it was interesting when this all hit. My boys play tons of sports and it's like every night we're at you know different baseball fields and football practice i mean it's like it's constant and when all that stopped our first realization was our kids both need bikes like and you just kind of step back and you're like we're so busy our children don't even have bikes because they never ride around the neighborhood and so we really as as things have started to open up even a little bit uh, out here in california we're really being more thoughtful about how busy do we want them to be? I feel like a kid should ride a bike from time. I mean, just basic stuff to your point. And so I think it's really changed our perception of, of even how we want to engage with activities. It's just very different. I know we're doing less. So what we're doing, we want to do better. We want to do in a really, like, I love the word thoughtful applied there. Yes. We want to do it in a, in a more thoughtful manner. So people, when they're giving feedback, when they're giving feedback to us, it is, it's, it's authentic. It's thoughtful. It's not rushed. We are taking the time. They're giving us this time, which is such a gift when the world is in this pandemic crisis. So we take that really seriously and we're beyond grateful for it. Kate, I want to move over to our lightning round questions. Okay. <laughs> They're rapid fire. Oh, yikes. Okay. I'm going to, I had a lot of coffee, so I'm ready. Okay. You mentioned the book Essentialism. So you recommend that book. Is there another book that you've read recently that you would recommend? Uh, yes, I. there's two books. So I love essentialism because what are you doing and why are you doing it? And if you don't prioritize your life and your work, someone else will. So that that one book, my husband read it. We do this crazy, we do this thing and it annoys both of us because he'll be reading a book, I'll be reading a book. We'll share ideas and thoughts and then we'll kind of try to steal each other's books because it sounds really great what the other person is reading. So the essentialism was one that he got first and then I stole from him. I will say I just finished, we do a book club at work and I love this as a management tool. So I read the book, How Women Rise, and it's by Sally Helgeson and Marshall Goldsmith. And it talks about women and career growth and development. And I read it and loved it. And so I created on my team, uh, when I was just running research, every person who reported to me, we chose a book to read together. And so with the two women on the team, we co-read How Women Rise because I loved it and said, let's read this together. I'll read it again. And then I read other books by people's choosing with the other folks on the team. And so we recently broadened the How Women Rise. We have other people in the book club now. And we just finished our discussion about it. And it is such a great read for women. And one of the things it talks about in the book, one of the things the authors talk about, and I appreciate that there was a man and a woman author of it, 
One of the, the notions in the book is the, the classic kind of pitfalls that women get into at work. And it's like thinking about your job as opposed to your career. Like we, we kind of fall in love with the position and the company and the people, and we don't kind of think more broadly. And it just provokes me on a daily basis to think about what are these larger problems we're trying to solve? And, you know, outside of research, outside of UX, like, what are we trying to do? What things are we, what rocks are we trying to move forward for the company? And so I, I love that it gets me thinking and dreaming bigger than I would normally be accustomed to. So How Women Rise, great read. And it's bright Tiffany turquoise. So you can't miss the book cover. <laughs> that sounds like a good one. Um, okay. I always love books that make you step back and kind of look at the broader picture. Yeah, it's a it's a great one. Yeah, it was a good exercise. The book club as a management tool is my that's our favorite. <laughs> that's a, been a favorite exercise. It's been a good one. That's awesome. That should uh, be a book. You should write a book called Book Club as a Management Philosophy. I think that would be awesome. I know we're we're actually we were joking about it on our book club. We were saying okay first, so we'll have to. We'll have to write the article and then we'll get the conference. We'll get the conference speaking spot. But you know what? We want to travel. So we're going to look for a conference in Hawaii. This is the plan. What's one piece of advice that you'd give someone trying to convince others about investing in customer centricity or customer centric design? Customer centricity, user centricity, putting the user and the customer at the center of your product development process. This happens with. The way to get that on the forefront is to bring in user and customer voices. You must have the words in a quote or the words coming through literally on a speaker in a presentation or showing people a clip of users struggling. That moment, it's not different than what we just talked about with seeing the, you know, seeing the young child hearing for the first time. You can't unsee it. And in my career, what has moved the needle? What has opened the checkbook in terms of getting resources? What has gotten executive attention is when executives see the users and the customers struggle and, and experience those pain points in the products themselves. And back in the day, we all used to try to get executives to come to the testing center, right? To watch the usability test from behind the glass. Those options don't exist anymore. And it's about showing, sharing and showing the clips of users struggling and bringing in the quotes in everyday language about when users say things like, I, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to be doing on this page. Like this is, I, in my career, I've heard users say things like, I don't know what's going on on this screen. It seems like a nothing burger. You know, I've heard that at previous companies. And so those words stay, they resonate, they stick, and they really drive home the point that, wow, we got we probably should do more of this. So if I could do one thing, it's that telemetry or that infusion of that user voice and that customer voice into, into the boardrooms, into the product, into the product team meetings, into those discussions. That's powerful. So as being part of the, the world of UX and, and CX, and if you're anything like I am, I tend to acknowledge and notice really great experiences and, and really yeah. poor ones. So tell us about a recent great experience that you had lately, maybe what made it so great. Okay. The, the pandemic has meant that our relationship with and our access to exercise and fitness opportunities has really changed. And so we started thinking about 
well, should we invest in a, you know, a nice treadmill for the house? So the kids and I renovated this, this area over the garage. So we have this kind of old attic space that we've renovated into this gym area. And I actually spent a lot of time, my daughter, actually, I'll give her the credit. She spent a lot of time trying to decide between a Peloton treadmill and a Nordic track treadmill. And I'm going to tell you, we said, well, we're going to obviously get the Peloton. And then she came back and said, no, we're going to actually buy the Nordic track. And here's why something called iFit has completely changed how my entire family feels about and experiences exercise. iFit is interactive technology that works with your Nordic track, works with your treadmill. And it's a custom training session with a trainer there's this enormous screen so like i go i go running with my trainer tommy Puzzi in switzerland right but when tommy runs up a hill it automatically adjusts my treadmill when he's going at whatever speed he wants to be at because he wants our heart rate at a certain at a certain percentage he adjusts the speed he adjust, like it adjusts automatically the speed and the incline so it takes It's like having a set of really perfect defaults. It takes having to self-serve and figure it out out of the equation. And it has completely changed how we feel about exercise and all of us do it. And then we have these, we have these great experience. It's interactive workouts. It is a dream. And I've trained for a half marathon in my life and it was the physically the one of the most uncomfortable, miserable experiences of my life. This is totally different. And we fight over who gets to go on the treadmill and when iFit has been the single best experience I've had in six months. It's been extraordinary. That's amazing to hear, especially because, you know, Peloton is known for right. creating this amazing experience and it sounds like I there's agree. certainly alternatives. I agree. And my daughter said, and, and we were like, really? You don't think we should get the Peloton? Because we kind of put her in charge of the research thinking like, all right, she's going to come back. Like, let's get the Peloton. And then she came back and said, it's actually the Nordic track. In a million years, I would have never picked it for ourselves. And it's got this huge 32-inch screen. And so I go up and so I, I, I'm an early morning riser. So I'll come down at 5.30 a.m. and I'll co- copy with my husband. And he'll say, were you seeing Tommy? Tommy's the name of the trainer. I'll say, yeah, I was in, Tommy and I hiked to the bottom of the Matterhorn today. It was amazing. We've got to go back to Switzerland. And so we have these, and then my son is walking in the English lakes region. And I think my daughter's doing a program in Portugal right now. And my husband's in New Zealand. So we're all off doing our own thing. We all have our own trainers and everyone's on a program and it's, it's really satisfying. And I am not someone who ever would do these kind of things, but it's been a great experience. The single, hands down, the best experience we've brought into our lives in over, in probably the last year. Oh, that's great. And also a really interesting intersection of design and technology and experience. Speaking of that, when you think about the future and sort of the changing landscape of customer-driven design and experiences, what are you most excited about? I'm most excited about seeing where product-led growth and this, this new renewed focus on, it starts with the user's need in the product. I'm excited about that because with the focus on data-driven decisions, with the focus on evidence-based design, I feel like all the things we've been talking about and dreaming about and putting the emphasis on the user for years, those two happening at the same time, that's going to just kind of explode research into its next generation. It's just going to make it, it's going to make it go into its next iteration. And I'm most excited about that because both are growing 
and really thriving at the same moment. So all of a sudden we have the focus back on the product and we have all the tools and methods we need to do to really measure that and assess that. Finally, like all these things are happening at the right time together. I can't wait to see what's next. Yeah, that's great. All these kind of force coming together. And the right. fact that you honestly can't have successful product-led growth without understanding what people actually want from your product and how to well, serve it up. Yeah. And you know what? In a, in a lot of ways, it's back to basics, right? Yeah. And so it's in a lot of ways, it takes us back to basics, just like we were just saying about, wait a minute, my kids don't have a bike. It's like, now we're going back to basics and saying, hold on a minute. Is it about having technology or is it about having chalk? And a chalkboard? Is it about having a bicycle and sneakers you can walk with? Like, why do why do we need to go to CrossFit if we can just put on sneakers and walk outside? Like, did we forget? Did we forget that it's about the user in that moment in the product? And let's let's use these measurement tools and figure out what's happening and why, and we can make that better. Let's start there. So back to basics, I'm in. All right. Thanks so much, Kate. This has been really fun, entertaining, but also learned a ton from you. So I really appreciate you joining us today. Well, I love being with both of you. And again, the yes always stands. Anything for you, Janelle. It's great to see you both. Andy, so good to see you. Yes, it was great. Thank you. Thank you both. And thanks for tuning in to the Human Insight Podcast. Want to keep the conversation going? You can visit our podcast hub, usertesting.com slash podcast, and check out past episodes. If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play so you never miss a good episode. And if you enjoyed our show today, please tell a friend or leave us a rating on iTunes.